it's going up forever, Laura. Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Once Bitten podcast. And joining me today is Eric Weiss, who has delivered the most effective orange pill of all time. That's why we started with that famous little clip of Michael Saylor. It's going up forever, Laura. This is the beast that has been unleashed, all thanks to many conversations that took place between Eric and Michael. And Eric shares lots of details of how that all started going down throughout their friendship over the last few decades. I hope you enjoy this episode. Eric, thanks so much for coming on. It was great to meet you. Look forward to many more conversations in the future. Before we do get into this show, please show support for all of your Bitcoin plebs out there. There's a lot of plebs doing great work. Shamari, big shout out. They're trying to raise some cash. Go and check out what they are doing. Scott and Mallory, just a husband and wife team trying to push the message of education around the globe. Go check out their recent tweet. They're trying to raise some cash from Tallycoin. Just throw in 10 bucks. Let's get another educational piece out there. Uh, SwanBitcoin.com forward slash Bitten. If you're not signed up, you should sign up. That will get you free 10 bucks and you can start stacking sats very quickly across Europe. You can use Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash Bitten. Download the app, start stacking today. Bitcoin Reserve have you covered across Europe in euros and pounds. Up to £1,000 a day you can stack on your card. I don't think of another, I don't think I know of another service that offers that. They also offer a white glove service for 50k and over. So if you've got any mates like Michael Saylor hanging around that you're about to orange pill, then you get them in touch with Bitcoin Reserve. Coincorner.com forward slash Bitten. Also coming on the show again very soon. Danny Scott and the team doing great work. They've just released the Lightning Bolt card and it's getting huge feedback. You can set up DCA or Smash Buy with those guys out of the Isle of Man. Make sure you have control of your coins though. Shiftcrypto.ch forward slash Bitten will save you 5% on the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet. Stack safe and be in control of your keys. Get to a conference. Excuse me. There's a lot going on. It's starting to flourish this scene again. I will be speaking at the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference in Prague in October. That's 21st to 23rd of October. So will Stefan Levera, so will Peter Young and Titus Gable. We are talking about parallel structures. Get your early bird tickets. Use the link in the show notes. Use code PRINCY for a 15% discount. I think the discounts are going down. It used to be 20%, but tickets are being sold. Check out Consensus Network also in the show links because Nico has been on the show doing great work translating as many Bitcoin books into as many different languages. 
BitcoinDay.io have you covered across micro meetups across the US, although they're not going to be micro for long. OB10 gets you a 10% discount. And Ungovernable Misfits are sending out some incredible teas and other merch. Go check them in the show notes. Enjoy this show with Eric. All right, we're recording with Eric Weiss. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Nice to see you both. You too. Right, Lauren, fire away. Um, so my question is, um, wait, I'm rethinking my question. How, how do you say it? Um, what does it feel like being friends with a millionaire? Wait, is that, is this right guy or am I going to make that? Because I was worried I was going to make that. <laughs> You've got the right guy. Um, it's interesting. I, would t- I, I actually get asked that question quite often. Um, so we do get to go on some pretty unique vacations and things like that, which is fun and unique that I normally wouldn't get to do otherwise. But really the best part about being friends with Michael is access to the supercomputer brain of his. And if you watch some of his podcasts, Basically, the whole world is now getting to experience um, the way he thinks and his explanations and his brain. So one of the things that I'm most happy about that he's gotten into Bitcoin and done all these interviews and, and done all these podcasts is that now that kind of gets shared with everyone and everybody gets to see what used to be just the same as the conversations that we would have around the dinner table or something. So that's really the best part of it. But we do get to go to some great restaurants and go go on some nice vacations and do some fun things as well. That sounds fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of stuff would you like to do? Like uh, if, if money wasn't a, a problem and you could choose to do anything. Um, anything? Mm-hmm anything um probably probably travel the world and eat all the food i can because then it's for free (laughs) all the good food you can yeah like really like good food cool restaurants and stuff yeah Yeah? all right traveling the world sounds like a great idea the truth is i think what you'll find is no matter where you go or what food you eat or what private airplane you may be sitting on or what really big boat you may be on. It's, it's really only as good as the people that you're with. And when you're sitting there in this really awesome place, eating really great food, it comes down to who you're talking to and who you're spending the time with, just like it would be with your friends and family at home. And there's really not that much difference. And if you're with people that you like and you're having a good time, it's a great experience. And if you're not with people that you like and you're not having a good time, it doesn't matter how good the food is or how nice the surroundings are. So you better like the people you're with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I might, I might bring you along maybe oh thanks <laughs> well i need to do podcasting duh yeah of course exactly <laughs> well be nice thanks for inviting me along and the rest of the family i hope um yeah sure yeah even you twin brother. <laughs> yeah <laughs> do you have any other other questions for eric um 
Wait, did Michael Saylor tell you about Bitcoin or did you tell Michael Saylor about Bitcoin? I told him about Bitcoin. Look where that got him. I, the orange pill of all orange pills. <laughs> Look where that got him. Exactly right. He's yeah, it's been uh it's been good for everyone. I told him about it a lot of times in the beginning, and he wasn't very interested in hearing about it for many, many years. And then just one day he was more interested in hearing about it. So when you're trying to convince someone of something, be consistent, but be polite. Good tip. Mm -hmm. Good tip, yeah. All right. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, thank um, you. Yeah, that's it. Thank you, bye. Thanks, Lauren. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. All right, thanks, Eric. Uh, yeah, let's wind this back. Oh, and she'll see you at the 100K party, is what she was saying. As, uh, she walked out. That I am really looking forward to. Yeah, that, that's going to be <laughs> for that's so many be reasons. A party. <laughs> Will you be yeah. part of the organizing committee? Were you going to get roped into that? Blissfully, I don't think I will. I don't think I will. Just sit back I and was, leave, uh, leave that to John Ballas. Exactly right. I was I was the uh, I was the organizing committee for the um, barbecue that we had, and that was that was about as much as I could handle. <laughs> <laughs> so to put that into context, so. that was a barbecue that would uh, that was thrown at Michael's place in in Miami, which uh, I was very very fortunate enough to get the chance to to meet you and and the other guests at, at that afternoon, which that was, was in incredible incredible fun. Uh, and some incredible people there as well. Uh, and that's yeah, when it really was. That's when uh, I think the average conversation over those four days, five days with anybody was about 84 seconds. Any, any, <laughs> any event you were at, whether you were at the main event, whether you're at a side gig, whether you were just meeting someone in a bar, but it was like inter, uh, introduction, big hug, handshake, how you doing? Know you on Twitter, know your name, know of you, uh, love your yep. work, move on to the next person that's tapping you on the shoulder. And that's uh, kind of what happened to us when I was introduced to you. And I was like, man, like, you know, at the end of my podcast, I asked the question, if you had one orange pill left to give to anybody, who would you give it to and why? And you've delivered the most effective orange pill ever known to man. So I <laughs> wanted to know, how did that go down? Yeah. And you looked at me and you're like, it went down right here where we were standing, like at that table. Just it did, um, yes. Yeah, it which was like incredible. So yeah, yeah let's do there's, it. There's a table at the yeah. There's a table at the end of uh, Michael's swimming pool um, at his house in Miami, where we spend uh, a lot of time and have a lot of meals. And yeah, that's where that's uh, actually where it took place. And is that where all of the other conversations had been taking place as well? Like, um, I know you said it'd been years that you'd been, but like the, the lead up to. Um, yeah, him. so um, the lead, uh, well, those, those conversations took place in a number of venues, but generally speaking, um, when he's spending time in Miami, um, what we'll do is, is we'll meet at, at his place and we'll sit out there at the pool um, and we'll have uh, breakfast or lunch or, or whatever it may be and um, 
play some chess and and talk about the day's events, investing, and all kinds of stuff. And that's really where we'll congregate, and people will you know come through, and uh, there'll be different guests all the time. Uh, there's always someone in town in Miami, so that's really where we spend most of the time. And you know we'll do other stuff and kind of you know I don't know play pickleball or you know whatever other stuff we do. But um, that's where we, that's where we kind of hang out most of the time, and then we do a lot of dinners uh in the dining room in the house so they would be there and uh really it's meal times where we just do a lot of talking um chess we don't talk much chess is kind of a a very cerebral solitary kind of thing where we both like kind of sit there in silence and uh we wait for him to move have you <laughs> he takes a lot long. he he thinks a lot longer than i do before <laughs> each move as you might as you might imagine <laughs> Have you, I was going to say, have you kept scores over the years? Do you have any idea of the um, the battle? He win well. When we first started, I didn't have any idea how to play chess, and he was quite good. So I had to. Uh, I don't like losing. So the first time we ever played, it was on this big outdoor board, mm-hmm. and um, I moved my pawn or something, and he kicked my, you know. 18 inch high pawn off the board and said on passant and I go what the fuck is that you know like what are you doing dude you can't just kick my piece off the board and like I I just hadn't I didn't even know the rules obviously right and so that was it I was pissed I don't like losing and so I decided that I was going to learn chess and uh, I did some research online and then I found um like some kind of international master in Siberia and took a bunch of lessons on, you know, Skype kind of learning uh, chess a little bit, learning some openings. And then uh, now we're at a, now we're at a place where um, he's still better than me. He still wins, uh, you know, more than I do, but it's probably more like, uh, you know, 65 35 kind of thing or 60 40 something like that in his favor how did so you guys it's enough that the outcome's not certain all right well well, well done yeah. getting up to speed that's that's proof of work right there <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. proof of work yeah and a classic bitcoiner kind of thing to do right just get out there hire someone download the knowledge and, and become a ninja i would love to yeah. know how you guys actually ever come to meet in the first place like what what brings you know you two in the same room yeah more than more than 20 years ago we were in colorado um skiing uh separately and um my sister was friendly with some folks from washington dc and michael was part of that friend group and the two of us met and just kind of you know got along and um were interested in similar things and you know, kind of struck up a friendship out of that and have kept in, uh, you know, good, good touch over the years through all our kind of various careers and, uh, you know, um, ups and downs. And uh, yeah, nothing, nothing uh, solidifies a friendship like time, you know, so we, uh, we know that we, you know, we're, we're kind of like really good friends and have each other's back with, you know, after a couple of decades, uh, you know, especially in Michael's position where he's kind of uh, has such a big target on his back. I think it's, um, 
it's everybody, people usually have an agenda when they're around him of some kind. So I think it's comforting that for him to have some uh, real friends who've been around for, you know, a long time that, you know, he doesn't have to worry that people are angle shooting him or something. And who were you at that point? What, what were you doing at that point in your career? Uh, when would that have been? So I was in venture capital at the time. Um, I started my career as a U.S. government bond trader. And then after that, I went to Columbia Business School. Um, and then after Columbia Business School, I got into venture capital and private equity, um, which at the time was, believe it or not, a very small industry. There were only 4,500 people in the United States in BC. So it was like pretty nascent. Um, I went to GE Capital. They were the only, they were the largest VC investor at the time, putting out about a billion a year. And they were the only VC firm with a training program. So after business school, I went to GE Capital, um, did some deals there for a while, did a deal in a company called Internet Capital Group, ICG. They were a internet-based kind of VC firm that went public. So I had invested in them on behalf of GE, turned out to be a phenomenally good investment for GE. I think we put in $9 million and 10 months later took out over $600 million. Hmm. So like phenomenally successful. And then the folks at Internet Capital Group um, literally made me an offer I couldn't refuse to come join their firm. So I moved to reluctantly moved to Philadelphia and worked with them until the internet bubble burst and our stock went from a, a high of like a $50 billion market cap to like a $300 million market cap. And they didn't need deal guys anymore. So uh, me and the other deal guys left the firm and then subsequently um, was the founding principal of a firm in New York called Stripes Group, which uh, was started by myself and one of the original founders of Internet Capital Group. And that firm is often doing really well today. Um, and then after that, I got into Bitcoin and crypto. So I'm guessing you and Michael would have spent a lot of time, even in the early days, talking about markets, right? Because he, if I've got the timeline right, yeah. the internet bubble uh, crashes, you'd have met Michael right around just, just a year or two after that went down. Uh, he would have been going through hell at the same time as well, because MicroStrategy would have gone from a, a very nice valuation to almost zero. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah, he, he um, <laughs> yeah, so it's in that context that the, the uh, gyrations and fluctuation of Bitcoin price in US dollars probably doesn't impact him that much. He's, he's lived <laughs> through considerably worse personally. Um, yeah, you know, it was, Michael has a gift for identifying um, technology network effects before other people. Hence the book, The Mobile Wave, um, where he, if you read The Mobile Wave now, it kind of reads like a boring history book. But at the time, it was not a history book. It was predicting what was gonna happen with uh, mobile apps and um, demonetizing uh you know keys and access and all kinds of other things that we now just kind of take for granted because all these applications are on our phone so just hearing kind of about the mobile wave and um, we talked a lot about technology investing and investing in you know companies like facebook and apple 
Um, and he always just was, you know, was really a step ahead of others. I remember in like the 2008 timeframe, we were talking about Apple and, uh, you know, he told me, you know, the die is cast, like Apple has won. And I'm like, what? This was not prevailing wisdom. Apple had like less than 20% of the market and, you know, Android was like 80%. And he's like, yeah, Apple's won. And I'm like, I don't get it. Why, why has Apple won? And, you know, like only Michael Ken with a hundred different analogies, he basically explained to me, in, you know, the bank energy where that would you rather own 80% of the bank, 80% of the money in it, and all the money in the world that mattered was on iOS at the time, you know, Apple's operating system. And, you know, it was like every rich person you meet had an iPhone or an iPad. Um, and that's where developers were gonna go. That's where, um, you know, all the excitement was gonna be. That's where the money was gonna go and just follow the money. And I mean, sure enough, he was right. I mean, I went and, you know, I had a little Apple stock at the time, but I went and bought a little more as a result of that conversation and, you know, guy's pretty good you need he doesn't miss on these things too often so um yeah conversations like like that um just really interesting kind of thoughtful um just like he explains bitcoin it's like really exactly the same thing same kind of stuff he's the man for an analogy that's for sure uh now of course once once he came out and, and made the announcement that you know kind of floored us all uh we all kind of, well not i wouldn't say all but many of us had we're waiting for a company to, to put Bitcoin on the balance sheet. None of us had ever heard of MicroStrategy before, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Out, out, of the, out of left field comes this dude like uh, announcing $250 million, which was 50% of the balance sheet at the time. You know, right. What in hell? But then, of course, in maxi style, somebody goes through six years of his tweets to find that tweet back in 2013 where he basically just disqualified bitcoin <laughs> it was amazing yeah yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> which michael loves talking about as well uh you know to, to give him credit he finds that very amusing and um I, I understandably turns around and says i had not done the work back then uh you know i'd looked at it briefly and and just yeah. completely kicked it to touch well, I mean, I think everybody is probably against Bitcoin or at a minimum skeptical of Bitcoin before they do the work. Like as, as in, v, in venture capital investing, you look at every opportunity and you don't look at it through a lens of um, excitement and isn't this great and wanting it to be a great opportunity. That's not the lens with which you make it what's the point here. Why isn't this going to work? And it's only when you can't find those weak points that you start to get excited about an investment, you know, so, or if those weak, weak points are like manageable kind of thing. So you're, you're, you're looking to poke holes in things. So 
I think from an investment point of view, you really should be starting to look at things from a fairly cynical viewpoint to start. And until you do the work, you can't really come to that conclusion. I mean, it's also particularly challenging for anyone that's had success in um, the traditional construct of our world to kind of see a new paradigm and see a new thing. You don't have any incentive to, you know, it's like, I've wanted our version of life. Why do I want to see an alternative version? You know, like this is good for me, a la Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, right? So, um, you know, credit to Michael for um, circumstances changing and um, not being able to make sense of the current situation and being open to kind of looking at new things at the time when the pandemic was going on and the government kind of broke with what uh, they had been done traditionally and just printed an ungodly amount of money in a relatively short time frame. Do you remember those those early conversations when you first started bringing up the the subject of Bitcoin around like uh, the dinner table, wherever you might have been sat? Yeah. Um, so initially I got into Bitcoin and, and I started a, a fund in the space and, you know, Michael's comments were, look, you know, you've, you've, you've got a really good reputation in traditional finance. We didn't call it traditional finance at the time. It was just finance, yeah. but uh, <laughs> you, right. you've, you've got a really good you know, reputation in, in your business and you've got a long career. Do you really want to do something, you know, in this, you know, crypto Bitcoin space, you know, like this is, this stuff is primarily used by criminals. That was the prevailing perception. And it wasn't entirely wrong. You know, it was like Silk Road and all this stuff. So, um, and I just, I had a different view. Um, when I saw Bitcoin, I discovered Bitcoin in 2013. And in my VC world, I was investing in uh, internet related businesses. So businesses that were using the internet as a central part of their value proposition. So we became pretty good at understanding what the internet is good for and what it's not good for. And what it was good for, and actually what it's still good for to a degree is sharing information quickly and not particularly securely uh, all over the world very quickly. And people were very reluctant and to a degree still are to even put their credit card in a website to like buy something online. Um, you know, everything was just not secure. And when I saw Bitcoin, ironically, at a conference in Miami, a Bitcoin conference in Miami in 2013, um, it was the first time that I saw the internet being used to transmit value safely and securely. And that was really mind blowing. And what was even more powerful than just transmitting value safely and securely was that party A didn't need to know or trust party B and there didn't need to be a third party intermediary. So the fact that someone you don't know could send you Bitcoin and that's real value that you don't have to question that the system just kind of takes care of this over the internet and this, you know, like, you know, like Jack, you know, talks about Bitcoin being the money of the internet and this magic internet money transfers from one entity to another risk-free, like mind blown. And so that's what I was focused on. And that's why I was excited about it and wasn't going to be deterred. So having those early conversations, like we all do, you, you clearly become yeah. annoying Bitcoin mate 
that every time you yeah. sat down. <laughs> yeah, but but it, you know, with the backdrop of I'm being the annoying Bitcoin mate to a guy who's running a publicly traded company that he started with 2,000 employees that's competing against the Microsoft and Salesforce of the world and kicking ass. And he's like in the, in the gauntlet, you know, every day fighting in the market, you know, and it's like his friends talking about this big, this crypto shit. It's like, dude, I, I got, I got adult problems here. Like I'm focused <laughs> on like, you know, adult stuff. Like, what are you messing around with? Like, this is not appealing. So, you know, the context is important. He, he was, he was doing uh, just fine in life, doing what he was doing. And it wasn't until he was sitting on that $500 million on the balance sheet and inflation was out of control. And he came to the conclusion that his purchasing power on that 500 million was being reduced by 10% a year. And he was losing purchasing power of $50 million a year. And he's got 2000 employees working their ass off in the hopes that they're going to make $50 million a year in profit, like that's a treadmill. You're on a treadmill. You, you can't help but fall behind. Like, what are we doing? And that, um, you know, it was in that context that he became more receptive to what stores of value could he use for this $500 million that, you know, would make the fruits of his and his employees' labor, um, you know, maintain some value. So that's that's the key part of the story right there. Like the context of I'm doing fine, Jack, no problem, to bam, lockdown, your whole business model is now completely changed. And he's said himself, like right. he'd have been the boss that would have, you know, fired someone if they insisted to keep on bugging him to work remotely from home. That gets turned yeah. upside down. Now nobody has a choice. Everybody's working from home. So he suddenly like realizes uh the the, the possible as he calls it the possibility now every single one of his executives became a time traveler overnight and they had the ability to to bend space and time and you could do 50 meetings right. in one day rather than two because you've been flying across the country to go and you know have facetime with yeah. somebody uh yeah that, and you don't and you don't need your top 10 salespeople for that your best salesperson can, can do the majority of those calls. So you can also, you know, save some overhead as well. So he, he not only was he going through that realization, but then sitting on the, the $500 million melting ice cube as uh, he's, he's referenced it yep. and sitting around a dinner table with you and bouncing ideas around. I'm sure the first idea was not Bitcoin. Yes. What were the other kind of options being discussed at that time? Michael remembers that um, when we were sitting at that table by, by, the, by a swimming pool um, and we were trying to make sense of this K-shaped recovery and the insane you know, money printing that was going on and the fact that asset prices were going up, in particular, the prices of assets that had absolutely no reason to go up, like cruise lines, right? Or, or um, Disney, which was in all the wrong businesses, laid off a bunch of people, theme parks, cruise ships, 
uh, movie theaters and okay, they had this over the top streaming service that wasn't expected, it still isn't expected to be profitable for a handful of years, like, and yet the stock price is going up, right? So we're trying to make sense of this new world. And I, and I, and Michael remembers me saying, uh, anytime there's, you know, uh, a shift like this or great change, there's opportunity. We just have to find the opportunity. And then I guess I just went back to kind of talking about Bitcoin because I kind of do that. And this time when I did that, um, you know, he said, tell me more about that, which I was like legitimately taken aback. I was like, oh, well, what do you, what do you want to know? You know, let's, let's start with, you know, there can only be 21 million. Well, what do you mean there can only be 20? You know, and he just kind of really started from the beginning. And um, that was the topic of conversation for, um, I don't remember how many days, but days, maybe, maybe a couple of weeks, um, you know, consecutively. And then uh, after I had, you know, imparted what, whatever knowledge I had about it, obviously it wasn't enough for him. And I pointed him to some resources where um, there was more information and then helped him get set up to, he's like, well, what if I wanted to actually buy this stuff? Um, so, I know a lot of people in the industry. I've been around a long time, so set them up with some, you know, very favorable situations with some some friends. And um, then one day I get a phone call, uh, you know, and usually it'll be a text, but it was a phone call. And um, like, oh, Michael's calling. I was I was pulling into a, a restaurant for dinner here in Miami, and I was like, what's up? And he said, uh, well, I bought Bitcoin, and I was like, okay, cool. He's like, yeah, ten thousand. And at the time, Bitcoin was ten thousand, like exactly ten thousand dollars, you know, per BTC. And I was like, "You bought one Bitcoin?" And he's no, Eric. I bought ten thousand Bitcoin. I was <laughs> so I went, you know, my emotions immediately went from being like excited that I got my buddy into Bitcoin to, oh shit, he just bought a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Uh, and anybody who's been in the space for a while knows that you don't just get a nice, fun, sweet ride up and to the right that, um, you know, it's a volatile, it's a volatile thing and you've got to live through some angst. So, uh, you know, I was just, my first thought was, you know, just hoping that it, you know, didn't negatively impact our friendship and stuff like that. But uh, obviously he's, He's a big boy to say the least and makes his own decisions completely. So uh, you know, I was off his research. <laughs> I was going to ask you a question about that because it's uh, it's something we all go through, right? That roller coaster ride of um, the orange pilling journey, you know, when you're trying to work on a close friend or family member, and then that that feeling when when they when they just about get it, and you can feel that something's starting to click in their minds. And that first buy, yeah. it's such a mixed emotion. Like it, it, it feels as though there's a huge weight off of your shoulders and you feel as though you, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling inside because you know you've just helped somebody secure their future in some way. And, uh, you know, it's now mm -hmm. down to them. They will carry on learning. They'll carry on doing their own research and whatever else. But like you said, at the same time, you know, there's a rocky road ahead, right? It's not uh, a bed of roses yeah. and there's going to be tough times and nope. there will be times where they get back in touch with you. 
So to have that on your shoulders, a hundred million dollar position out of nowhere. Yeah. And that, and, and that was not corporate. That was personal. Um, yes. That, that's precisely yeah. right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Like that, that was yeah. before the announcement of, uh, of MicroStrategy. Correct. Had he even talked to the board about it at that point? Or did he start going in personally first to get I a don't, feel for it? I don't know. We're pretty respectful of the walls between his corporate stuff and, and personal stuff. So um, I was not even aware, uh, to be candid, I was not even aware of the fact that um, what was driving a lot of his decision-making was the corporate balance sheet. Um, so I wasn't privy to that. Um, it was more just kind of a, you know, buddies talking about this stuff kind of context. Um, so yeah, I was, yeah, I was, uh, I w surprised might not be the right word because he doesn't do things in half measures, but I was impressed with, uh, just how strongly he came in at the corporate level yeah. and how resourceful he was about uh, how to buy more. Yes. I mean, if you think about it, he managed, he really started with $250 million, right? That's what his board would let him use. And, and he took $250 million that he had at his disposal and a billion dollar public company. And since then he's managed to buy, um, what, three and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. So it speaks to the power of Bitcoin, but it also speaks to uh, his determination. <laughs> and creativity to- No doubt, I mean, yeah, issuing debt at 0% to buy Bitcoin. I mean, convertible debt, God bless him, absolutely genius. He found Early the cheat code. Your Bitcoin. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a, he's a very uh, intelligent and resourceful person to say the least. So like, um, I want to take you back because uh, you, you'd mentioned uh, being a bond trader and uh, the bond market is obviously something you you know pretty deeply uh and you would have you'd have had these discussions as well i'm sure when when uh you and michael were going through the um you know ticking the boxes well is it gold is it silver is it bonds is it you know whatever can we get i think the plebs love this when we talk about the old days when you were actually on the yeah. floor trading bonds back in the yeah. 90s i'm guessing early 90s am i doing you a misservice yeah there? 90s 90s you're correct yeah wild yeah, times would have been, wild. It, would, it, would, it would have been the early to mid 90s right so i i remember those those days in the markets i joined uh, foreign exchange markets in mid 95 and we didn't even have computers at that stage in our on our desks yeah uh, you know we didn't have email addresses nothing very few of us even had um mobile phones but yet yeah. you were thrust into the midst of this global market um so let, let's paint a picture for the plebs what did a day look like for you in the mid 90s going into trade bonds where, yeah. where were you so who i were worked you working uh, for? right let's go i worked in the world trade center so i was on the 60th floor of two world trade um, working for Dean Witter Reynolds, which subsequently became Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. And I was sitting on the fixed income trading floor. 
trading um, treasuries and agencies um, two years or shorter in duration and uh, had a Bloomberg terminal that had a news ticker at the bottom that still does and just scrolls the news like as it's coming out um, because everything that happens in the world impacts interest rates. And I had about six or seven screens in front of me with, you know, and those screens would have been just green and black, green numbers on black screens, right? Not, uh, not like today's monitors. And um, on all those screens were the different markets at different brokerage firms. And I would sit there and stare at the screens all day. I would have an opinion on um, what direction uh, yields or bond prices were going in addition to servicing the retail clients. So if someone came in and wanted to buy 10 million two years, I would you know, be forced to make them a price on that and say, I'll sell them to you at this price and you know, done kind of thing. And uh, had two phones all the time with mute buttons in the middle of each one and always had you know, one in each year. And we cursed a lot and it was super intense. And um, you take positions and you hope you're right and you try to you take a big pile of money and you try to turn it into a bigger pile of money and um you go home at night and the world doesn't stop but like you said no cell phones and and no connectivity so we actually had pagers in those days and if we had a, if i had a particularly big position on one side of the market or the other um i would go to sleep with my pager next to my bed and in the Tokyo session or something, if markets moved more than, you know, I, I leave my broker's instructions like, hey, if it moves more than, you know, like five basis points or something or whatever it is, you know, like hit me up or something. And, you know, and you start hearing that buzz on the, you know, middle of the night on the nightstand from the uh, pager that's going off. And it's like, oh shit, something moved. And, you know, what do we do? Do we sell out of the position here? Do we buy more and, you know, like, middle of the night make a trade and um, get into the office wearing a suit at like you know 7 30 in the morning and um, there's no taking breaks there's no lunch there's no missing work for sickness there's vacations but not really it's like frowned upon if you actually take your vacation and it was just very analogous to kind of playing a professional sport you know the intensity and the competitiveness and the positive and negative reinforcement that's almost instantaneous and I loved it. It was like really thrilling, but um, but I looked around the trading floor and um, there there weren't too many people in their 40s, much less 50s. There, it was a young person's game, and um, I thought, am I going to make enough money to retire uh, at 40 here, or do I need a career of some kind? And so uh, there aren't a lot of transferable skills from trading, so I needed a pivot point. So uh, went to business school. They were certainly the days. Uh, yeah, you, you would. Um, I have epic stories from those days. The we we need one traders or two. Are just we we need one or two of those stories. Yeah, traders are assholes. We we could say that. Like, I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if there are any stories that I could actually tell. They're really. Uh, <laughs> Fights, fights um, on the really floor. Some, some pretty, some pretty, some pretty racy stories. Um, and just a lot of practical joking. I mean, yes. I, I guess I can give one story. This is pretty bad, but 
Um, so it was just tons of practical jokes all the time that were like always taken a bit too far. And um, we're all sitting on these trading desks like right next to each other and you can kind of punch in and listen into anybody's call. And so we, are, we were all using the same physician because he was the brother of one of the guys on the trading floor. And so we all went to this one doctor in Manhattan and there was a new guy, he was on our repo desk and he was gonna be going to the doctor for the first time. So we had one of the girls uh, on the trading floor call him and pretend that she was from the doctor's office um, and said, oh, you're coming in for your appointment. And everybody on the whole trading floor is listening into this. And, uh, you know, and he's like, oh, you're coming in for your doctor's appointment today, first appointment, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah. She's like, okay. And she tells him, uh, you know, okay, just be sure to bring a stool sample with you, you know, when you come in. And he's like, seriously? And she's like, yes, seriously. And he's like, okay. So he's like, the fuck? So he like hangs up the phone and then like, you know, a couple hours later, like a styrofoam container, like, you know, behind his desk. And then because it was, and because it was like our friend's brother, who was the doctor, we got the other side of the story and he shows up and he hands it to the receptionist. And she's like, what the fuck is this? So it was like, you know, just crazy jokes like that. Um, you know, yeah, all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> That's like the most acceptable one that I could tell. Yeah. <clears throat> I have a ton of those as well. Uh, and that, yeah, that, that's yeah. why I loved uh, working in that environment. Um, it, it, it felt like, yeah, it felt like the cross between a frat house and um, hanging out with some of your best buddies because you form that camaraderie, right? Because you are going through hell yeah. as well. Like you got to make that pretty clear. You're going through... Oh yeah. The stress is unbelievable. Yeah. People think that wall street like compensates very generously and I guess to a degree it does, but the, they really extract their pound of flesh. The stress mm -hmm. is pretty extraordinary. And if you don't perform, there's very little loyalty. Like you're out, you're just fired, zero bonus fired, zero fucks given. Like, what have you done for me lately? Gone. The, the, the toll I've seen it take on people is incredible. The, the, the amount of broken down families as well, failed marriages, uh, oh, the, yeah. the um, dependence on alcohol or certain other substances, rampant. Absolutely. And rampant. Rampant. The, the, the health of people is, at, I mean, mine was, mine suffered big time. You know, I put on like probably 20 yeah. kilos sitting in that chair all day long. Uh, and, you know, I used to sit next to a guy who every day would have two English muffins with butter and bacon for breakfast, smoked two packs of Marlboro Reds a day, and when work was done was at the bar drinking martinis until he had to catch his train home. And like that was a standard profile. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes a toll. I, you know, when I was young, I was a uh, 21, 22, 23, like that. And um, I thought, no, this shit's not bothering me at all. Like this is having no impact on me. Like I really was totally imperceptible to me at the time. But fast forward a couple of years, you know, I had perfect eyesight when I started and I started to wear like contacts after that. I also had all my hair, you know, the hair started to disappear too. It's like, oh shit, maybe that, maybe that stress really does take a toll. And I know that 
you know, people watching might, you know, say like every job is stressful, you know, like it's just as stressful to be like, you know, flipping burgers at McDonald's or whatever. Mm -mm. Try going to sleep with $500 million on one side of the market and knowing that if it moves 10 basis points, you're going to come in and not have a job, you know, like mm -hmm. it's, it's stressful. It's the different chemicals that are pumping around your bloodstream the whole time and not the, not the, the yeah. ones that you know you might have taken outside but like the the dopamine the adrenaline um the the whatever it's it awesome. is that is running through it's coursing through your veins like if you've just put that deal together and it's gone perfectly you're you're like you're, you're on the highest of highs but that deal could break down in the next 10 seconds no fault of your yeah. own and then you're on the lowest yes. of lows and all of this stuff is being pumped around your body going through all of your organs it's flowing through your blood like this is why people oh, yeah. uh, you know they, they their hair turns white quicker than it would or you know, falls out or it is it cannot oh. be underestimated the the it can't the toll it takes on you you, you nailed it i mean i i can remember you know when you're trading bonds it's uh, the interest rates are so sensitive to economic data releases and i can remember you know working and thinking and, and doing research and having an opinion on you know where the unemployment number may come out or where ppi may come out or something like that and so first you got to kind of get them think you're, you know what are estimates is it going to be better or worse than estimates you make a bet based on your perception maybe you get it right and you're all excited the number comes out and it was like better or worse than expected you nailed it and like the market knee jerk moves in like the direction that you think it's supposed to move as a result of this. And you feel like a fucking hero and you're like slamming your phone and screaming like, fuck, <laughs> you know, like, like you just made bank, like you nailed it. You did all this work, you're right. And then for reasons that we can't explain, the market just whipsaws the other direction. And now you're down on the trade in like two seconds and you're like, what am I an idiot? Like what, what just happened? You know, it just, it's, it's this roller coaster of emotions and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. That's not to suggest that it's gambling. If you're good, you make money over time, but um, it's, uh, it's certainly exciting and stressful. And that's why I said it's kind of like playing a sport in my opinion. It's so like that adrenaline rush. I, I noticed you've got your, all your models are broken t-shirt on which uh, <laughs> yeah. is, is a classic uh, sailor, sailor quote. And it's so true. Yeah. And now, now you're, you know, uh, Bitcoin maxi and sitting there looking at the, um, the, the market and what's going on with all of your past experience of like modeling out venture capital funds uh, that you um, company, your venture capital funds for yeah. companies that you might want to invest in the, the work that you did in the, uh, the bond market, like you said, looking for those different numbers, trying to make models of, you know, uh, and projections of where the, the bet was going to go. Yeah. And now we have Bitcoin. And if you're, I guess you're like me, you just give up with making these models because you know, it's going up and you needn't worry because you're just stacking away, but there's still a hell of a lot of prediction going on out there. There's a lot of like uh, technical analysis that, that people are pushing and, how do you um how do you see that? Um I wouldn't say that I don't worry. It would be disingenuous to say that I don't worry. I do worry. Um so 
I think in the last, uh, in the prior crypto bear markets or winters or whatever you want to call them, there was a, there was a narrative that was, um, is this going to go away? Is this all a big scam? Is this going to get regulated out of existence? This time, it is a very different narrative. It is, uh, how long will this winter last? Is this a buying opportunity? Will there be a buying opportunity lower? Should I wait? Should I come in now? Is this a good time? So the permanence and acceptance of Bitcoin um, is there now and it wasn't in previous bear cycles. And I think that it can't be overstated how big that is. So I think, you know, the way I look at Bitcoin is like a little bit moral and ethical as well as financial. So I think that the world uh, at large has very, very big problems. And I don't, the, the solutions to these problems are not readily apparent to me. I don't understand how a lot of the weaker fiat currencies on the planet are going to continue to exist. I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen in the United States. I don't think the Fed has the wherewithal to raise interest rates to a level to throw us into a recession or depression and ostensibly save the dollar. Um, and so I think that we do things in election cycles. No one wants to be the one to take the punch bowl away. Um, the Fed will dampen inflation to the extent they can, but the money printing is not going to stop. And therefore inflation is not going to stop. And so gold is broken. Gold is genuinely broken. It's not some narrative that uh, I or anyone's trying to push. Gold is the same price per ounce that it was 10 years ago in US dollars. And the value of the US dollar has decreased materially over the last decade. That's not even subjective. Right? So by definition, gold is not a good store of value. It's not holding value over the last decade. Um, so I think Bitcoin really does represent hope for a lot of reasons to a lot of different constituencies. And I don't think there's any guarantee that Bitcoin is going to work or be accepted or gain uh, the popularity and momentum and success and acceptance that it should or needs to get, but I also don't see an alternative. So it's like the only hope. And I think that at some point in life, you have to stand for something. And um, morally, ethically, and financially, this is something that I can stand for and get behind and champion to other people in good conscience. So that's why I support it. That's why I'm in it. I hope it's gonna work, but I'm still very cognizant of the fact that we're still in the experiment stage. We're still ridiculously small. We are smaller than a medium-sized technology company. I don't know, isn't like Bitcoin like roughly the size of Tesla, right? So it's like um, to think that governments couldn't band together and not kill it because you can't kill something, right? Like that's decentralized. But to impair it to a point that it has de minimis relevance, that is absolutely a non-zero possibility. 
Um, so I think we're still in the hopeful experimentation stage. Things are going much better than I ever allowed myself to envision from a regulatory point of view, from an acceptance point of view, um, really just across the board, things are just, it's working out better than, better than I ever envisioned. So I'm incredibly optimistic and positive on it. Um, and it's where the majority of my personal uh, net worth is, but I think it has the potential to do so many things for so many people, um, including the unbanked globally, because the biggest problem facing the world is not rich people not keeping pace with inflation and you know uh, having to live in not as nice a house that they want or not being able to afford the car they want or something. It's, it's the wealth gap and the people who are working paycheck to paycheck who really do have some savings, but their savings is becoming worthless because of inflation. And to the extent that those people could store their money in something like Bitcoin, like a Bitcoin savings account, and just move it over to some kind of fiat wallet when they need to transact, that might actually bank billions of people in the world who are unbanked and help to narrow the wealth gap and really just help the world in a material way. So I am, uh, I'm hopeful. And, and yeah, this, this idea again of like um, the unbanked, when the powers that be try and spin themselves this, this nice tale of we are printing this money to, you know, for, for the poor people to, to help those people, you know, in, in poverty, like, all right, you still need a bank account though, if you're ever going to get that money. So who, whoever you're giving this money to is still not reaching the unbanked people. So that even that divide from, you know, from the bottom up, the bottom up divide is, is getting uh, even wider and wider. It's just this perpetual negative fear, like a circle of death. It's, it's got to end. It is. And it's really insidious because um, the folks in government, number one, they seem to only embrace solutions that are solutions they come up with. Even if a solution's good, if they didn't come up with it, they don't want to champion it, which is really disheartening uh, to me. There's no reason that Bitcoin should have any partisan connotation whatsoever. It's literally great for any constituency if you care about people. So that that's peculiar to me. Um, and then, you know, the, these the unbanked people, it's a problem in the United States. It's a bigger problem in the United States than people think. Mm -hmm. But the problem outside the United States is orders of magnitude bigger. So Bitcoin's value proposition is not country specific to the United States, even if you're a United States citizen holding Bitcoin. So I just think that somewhere, some country, some constituency is going to embrace Bitcoin in a big way. Like when Turkey just issued some new debt, I thought, wouldn't it be fucking awesome if they took the proceeds of that debt and just bought a crap ton of Bitcoin and started to back their currency with Bitcoin? Or if like the Saudis who are pushing back, trying to leverage against the US about pricing oil in dollars. If the Saudis were to just say, you know what, fuck it, we're gonna price our oil in Bitcoin, or we're taking Bitcoin. And what if they front ran it and bought, uh, you know, $100 billion worth of Bitcoin first, 
and then said that, and then watched the price of the Bitcoin quadruple as a result of it, instead of helping the Chinese yuan become more accepted or you know bolstering the US dollar, they would be helping themselves. And so it just seems inevitable to me that some entity somewhere along the line is going to see this, embrace this and do it. And that's gonna be the kind of catalyst we need to kind of jump it to the next level. And then I think it, at some point it does develop some kind of um, virtual, uh, like this feedback loop or self-fulfilling prophecy where um, you know, once enough people are kind of on board, you have no choice but to kind of capitulate. It's happening now a little bit, I think, with respect to Wall Street's embrace of it, but it can happen on a much, much larger scale, I think. And I'm sure you've been privy to some of the conversations that, uh, well, as your, um, as Michael's Bitcoin knowledge has uh, developed, you know, way beyond any of us, uh, I'm sure that you, you don't yeah. need to have those conversations like what is Bitcoin anymore, but what will Bitcoin be? Uh, and I'd be, you know, you, you must have had some very deep, thoughtful conversations about where this is taking us and the um, the social impact it's going to have. And, and probably been um, exposed to some people at the, uh, the regulatory kind of level uh, and see how they're thinking. Obviously, Senator Lummis is, uh, you know, the the kind of poster child of of that kind of realm that she's adopted it, and she wants to, you know, educate her constituents about it. And it, this is so bullish. It's a but, lot more. It's a lot more than her. I mean, yeah. Senator uh, Danes posted a picture with Michael this week on Twitter. Um, you know, Michael's met with a number of. United States senators who are very positive of both sides of the aisle who are very positive on Bitcoin. Um, I think the regulatory acceptance of, of Bitcoin is it's just amazing. I mean, you know, Gary Gensler is an interesting figure as head of the SEC. He clearly has a lot of love for Bitcoin. Um, he might not have helped us that much yet. I think it would be constructive for him to do a lot more and draw some brighter lines, maybe between property and security, things of that nature, and kind of um, carve out some clearer footing for Bitcoin from a regulatory point of view. But even Janet Yellen's had positive things to say. Um, and I think the relevance of these political figures saying these positive things is A, it implies that we're going to regulate this prudently and not outlawed in any way quite strongly, which didn't used to be such a foregone conclusion. And, and B, we've got, I mean, the president's executive uh, memorandum or whatever he put out, the first paragraph of that was very telling where it said 40 million Americans you know, now have cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or something as part of their life. The fact that they acknowledge that 40 million Americans, and it's grown dramatically since then, it's a lot more. What that told me is, they're saying, hey, you don't get reelected taking away something from people that they want. So this is here, this is a part of our lives now. Let's find a way to make this safe for people and regulate it prudently. And that'll bring in institutional capital. I mean, I know that, um, you know, Bitcoin, a lot of Bitcoin maxis want these like kind of uh, 
libertarian anarchist no rules kind of thing but it's just not realistic not yet no yeah. uh, and right now you can see it playing out you know politicians are going to politic right and the the reason these yeah. things take slow to take hold is because somebody makes the first move uh, and let's say that's Lummis that came out the loudest and, and proudest about that they're all watching her thinking she's toast man you give this woman two weeks and she's gone and then three weeks go yeah. by and four weeks go by and here we are months if not years later she's de-risked that whole narrative like she's shit. that's the lady that said that went you know all in on bitcoin she's still very prominent and she's not lost her job and in fact more and more people this yeah. is what bitcoin does to everything it game theorizes the whole thing and it's going to start slowly yeah. turning all of this on their heads. So now other politicians see, huh, I do not carry the career risk. In fact, I carry the career risk. I'm not up to speed on Bitcoin because if one of my, if my, you know, the head of my party asks me about this or constituency or whatever, uh, I better have a damn yeah. good answer for him because otherwise I'm going to look like an idiot. Yeah, I was I was very impressed with uh, with Senator Lummis. I was fortunate to have dinner with her this past year and and, and some others. And um, you know, I think she's a little bit unique in the sense that senators obviously represent a state, and it seems like most of the time they come to Washington and their purview and their focus is my state. You know, and so they look down like what's good for their state. Like, how does this impact my state? I'm going to fight for the things that are state specific. And I think it takes a lot of courage uh, for somebody like Senator Lomas to take something that cares, that, that pertains to the country as a whole in such a big way and make it such a priority in her agenda. I think she said it was her number one thing on her agenda, you know, was Bitcoin. So, you know, to it gives me a little bit of hope for, for kind of some politicians that they're not just all uh, kind of horse trading and, and concerned about re-election. She, uh, she struck me as very genuine and very sincere and her reasons for being interested in it are what we would consider the right moral and ethical reasons. And she's very persuasive and she's, uh, and she's educated a lot of people. Um, so I'm really optimistic. I, I, I think it's entirely possible that next president of the United States might hold Bitcoin. And because Bitcoin is not a security, um, people in Congress can champion it and support it and talk about it. Um, you couldn't do that if it was a security and they can hold it as well, it's property. So I think that uh, Ted Cruz is another one. I mean, I don't happen to know much about his politics. I know that he's pretty polarizing, but he's really knowledgeable about Bitcoin. Um, he's super supportive for a lot of the right reasons. He totally gets the energy piece of it. And so I think that, um, you know, more and more people are, are getting on board politically. And I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by how the United States is kind of educating themselves and embracing it. It's taking longer than we would have hoped, but uh, hopefully Gensler uh, can have some kind of positive impact um, before his term is over. Let's hope so. But you and I both yeah. know this is a grassroots movement, and I would love to know what's carried, what's been the carryover from the conference in Miami. Uh, that that's the second year that's happened. 
first year maybe between yeah. ten to fifteen thousand people the second year between twenty to twenty five thousand people has that spilled over into the community i know we were successful in uh, orange pulling a few uber drivers um is it yeah. are you are you finding more and more kind of uh, roadside cafes are open to accepting bitcoin has it had an impact on on the no, town i'm not i'm not seeing it to be honest um I'm really not seeing it. I think that, you know, the shame of the price movement to the downside is not that the price is down. The shame of it is, is that it hurts the enthusiasm for follow through and things like that, um, you know, from my perspective. So it'll go up again. I have, you know, supreme confidence in that, not out of like, uh, any bias or arrogance, it just, it, it's just, uh, it's growing in acceptance. More people are going up the learning curve. It's a potential like hedge against inflation. I just, I just think it's going to go up. Um, but Bitcoin is interesting in the sense that people are more interested in buying it when it's going up and hitting all time highs or, or accepting it in their store or talking about it or whatever than they are when it's, you know, chopping sideways or going down. So it's it's a peculiar and interesting phenomenon, but the excitement will be back out of necessity, you know. It's coming. Last question it's about coming. Miami. Has the Miami coin had a kind of effect on anybody there? Did anybody get wrecked and, and never going to touch crypto again? What it, it, Does anyone talk about so. it? I don't think so. No, it's, you know, it's, no one really talks about it. There's some articles written about it. I guess it's potentially a little bit of a black eye for uh, Suarez who championed it. And, but I think it's like a good cautionary tale and a lesson um, to, to everyone. And there were, there were popular uh, Bitcoin pundits and crypto pundits uh, on Twitter who championed this and, and encouraged Suarez to do this. And I think you know, the, the takeaway here and the lesson is there's a lot of moral hazard in crypto and digital assets. I'm not against crypto per se. I think that um, there, there are companies and technology and liquid venture capital in the digital asset space that Bitcoin is uh, helping usher in. And there will be decentralized finance and all kinds of things and NFTs and other stuff. And, and that's great. And there'll be a venture capital um, opportunity and world there. But when people start conflating different cryptos and stores of value and money, there's tremendous moral hazard, especially when you start doing it at, at a government level. And I just think that as a, as a maxi community, we continue to kind of push a little too hard into things sometimes too quickly. And it's better to kind of move more prudently and have successes that we can champion and scream about than it is to uh, move too fast and have failures that hurt our credibility. Um, you know, be it a Bitcoin volcano or something, you know, or a Bitcoin city, we don't need a Bitcoin city. You know, it's it's hard to build a city. It's like trillions of dollars to build a city. Like, we don't need a Bitcoin city. We just need 
you know, maybe don't tax people on their Bitcoin gains. Like let's, let's start small, let's start with manageable stuff and let's, uh, let's just keep kind of racking up the smaller wins and gain momentum and bring more people, uh, you know, under the umbrella that should be welcoming to everybody. That unveiling of the Bitcoin city thing was, it, it was funny to watch, uh, like it, perfectly memeable Zoolander moment, which you know, <laughs> it's, fu it's funny to watch for us, but to, to, to someone who's not in Bitcoin, who we might have a viable chance of getting into Bitcoin for all the right reasons, they see this and it makes our job harder because it's laughable. It's not credible. So, you know, <laughs> Anyway, it kind of it kind of irks me, but you know, whatever. This is what happens when you have a decentralized uh, governance, as opposed to you know, kind of you know, we have no centralization, we have no marketing budget, we have no head of marketing, um, we have a lot of people trying to do good in all the ways that they can, and you know, we kind of take the the good with the bad, so to speak. It brings all kinds, uh, and. Yep. I've got to I've got to give a shout out to Fractal because it brings the artists as well when you're sitting in front of uh, one of Fractal Encrypt's yeah. beautiful pieces there. There it uh, is. That, uh, yeah. What number is that? That is number six. Yeah, excellent. Big number shout six. out Fractal. Yeah, excellent it's, work. it's really yeah, big shout out to Fractal. It's um he's he's really um in addition to being just an incredible artist and the and the detail um in one of these pieces is just extraordinary uh from the merkle trees to the equations to the having cycle i mean it, it's unbelievable um and the book that goes with it is just ridiculous um but he he is such a maxi that he's been offered uh more money than he was selling these pieces for in dollars and refused to take it he will only accept bitcoin so for anything he does so I have a lot of respect for him. He's a, he's a terrific guy. All right, mate. Well, I've got to ask you the, uh, the, the final question. Uh, yeah. you've, you've, you've already delivered the most powerful and effective <laughs> and efficient orange pill yet known to man. But if you only had, and, and you carry on trying to orange pill as many people as you can, obviously, but if you only had one orange yeah. pill left to give to somebody, who would you give that to and why? Oh, I knew this question was coming and I still don't have a good answer. Um, if I only had one orange and, and, and if I give this orange pill, it's going to take, right. It's going to be effective. Oh, yeah. It's going to do, it's going to, it's going to do what it did to Mike. I mean, whoever the next president of the United States is, that is, that, that would be the ultimate orange pill. Get if it the in United there. Yeah. States, yeah. If the United States can, truly embrace Bitcoin, which it should, because it's consistent with all of the values upon which this country was founded, then I think the rest of the world will follow, will follow suit and Bitcoin um, can really do a lot of good for a lot of people and, and maybe, maybe save, uh, not to be overly dramatic, but maybe save the planet and kind of help us from, from this direction that we're heading in financially. And when's the next election are we two years into this term already is that is yeah that about, right yeah. so yeah if you were to 
it's well, if you going knew by who it very was, slowly. <laughs> if you knew who it was yeah. going to be, you right. could get it in there and then they'd have two years just to like disseminate. Through my long soul. shot prediction is my long shot prediction is Joe Manchin. We'll see. All right. All right. We'll see. Well, good luck. Good luck orange pilling him. Thanks. Uh, is there anything, <laughs> Thanks. Is there anything uh, that we didn't cover or any kind of like final thoughts or anywhere people can get a hold of you? Yeah, I mean, no, I always love chatting with you. Happy to come back anytime. Um, probably Twitter's the best way. I think my Twitter is Eric underscore B-I-G-F-U-N-D. Excellent. And that'll be the title of the show so people can come and find you. And I look forward to uh, meeting you again in person. Hopefully we'll be able to get back next year with a whole family to come to Miami and uh, hang out. That would be awesome, man. We'd love to see you guys. All right. Thanks, Eric. Take care, brother. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, guys. Thank you again for tuning in. And thank you, Eric, for giving up your time and coming on the show and sharing all of these uh, behind-the-scenes stories of yours uh sitting down it was it was so great to to actually meet you at the spot where you had been having those conversations with michael and uh we will i guess we will all look back in history in decades to come and uh those those moments uh that we sit down with whoever whoever it is in our lives that we orange pill and um you don't know that you're making history at that point that you're doing that uh some are going to be more monumental than others right now eric you hold the record i would say for uh, most effective orange pill so good luck giving out uh, your next ones i know you must choose them wisely uh so again thank you so much for coming on the show if you guys want to reach out to eric his dms are open go follow him on twitter uh, keep the conversation alive uh let's go there's so much yet to do in the space so much yet to build and so many more people yet to educate and it's all so important what every single one of you are doing uh, it all counts it's all going to add up we're all being pushed in the right direction and it's just so great to be a part of this community love you all thank you for listening uh, if you want to check out my book that's choose life you can find that on amazon it's all over amazon you can download it on kindle for free i think if you have uh, the the top tier kindle um membership and uh, check out the show sponsors it's all in the show notes if you don't catch the links as i read them out or if you've already tuned out because you're bored of hearing them but these are great companies and they do deserve being supported and uh, getting the airtime that they do that's swan bitcoin in the u.s it's relay across uh european zone and they can help you out in the uk as well bitcoin reserve doing great work and like I said at the beginning of the show, if you do manage to orange pill someone with big bags, big pockets, Bitcoin Reserve are going to be the place to go and uh, point them in that direction to help them with a white glove service. Uh, and layer on top of the education that you've already put down as a foundation. Coin Corner are doing great work over in the Isle of Man. This is a really old exchange now. Danny and the guys have been around for a long time doing great work. Uh, and they're coming on the show again soon to talk about all of that. Shift Crypto, make sure you're stacking safe, you'll sleep better. They've got the Bitbox 2 hardware wallet. BitcoinDay.io across the US for your meetups. Liberty Now Lifetime conference, check it out in Prague. Consensus Network, buy someone a gift, buy someone you know who speaks a different language, a Bitcoin book in a different language. And check out Ungovernable Misfits if you need some 
new clothes. Take care, guys. Catch you on the next show.